May it please the listeners, my name is Rich Schoenstein, and this is Law Brief. This week, I'm accompanied by two of my colleagues, Bob Wolf and Alex Tickton from our Bankruptcy and Restructuring Group. Hi, guys. Hey, Rich. Thanks for having us. Hi, Rich. Thanks for having us on the podcast. My pleasure. We're going to talk about the COVID-19 Emergency Eviction and Foreclosure Prevention Act of 2020. That's a mouthful and the current state of the moratorium on mortgage foreclosures and to some extent on tenant evictions in the state of New York. I'm going to go first to Bob Wolf, who's going to tell us a little bit about the history of the COVID-19 Emergency Eviction and Foreclosure Prevention Act. First of all, does that have a short title? That's a mouthful. I think, Rich, they've done a, an acronym, if you will, CIFTA. C-E-E-F-P-A. That's the way you see it in the case decisions. All right. And that was enacted December of last year. Is that right? That is correct. The original version of the statute came into play on December 28. It protected residential tenants and residential property owners from eviction and from foreclosure through May 1 of this year upon their filing a hardship declaration form attesting to their financial hardship during the pandemic. And in the original version of that bill, if the tenant filed a hardship declaration, did the landlord have any possible response? No, there was no response allowed. The hardship declaration filing in and of itself stayed any ability of the landlord or the mortgagee to evict the tenant or foreclose upon the property involved in the foreclosure action. Right. And you mentioned a May 1, 2021 date. I gather that's been extended. In May of this year, the state legislature extended that moratorium date until August 31, 2021, because of the high infection rates that were going on across the state. And that extension also placed a moratorium, if you filed a hardship declaration, on commercial evictions and commercial foreclosures. That is the evictions of foreclosures affecting commercial properties as well. So that was through August 31. All right. So the act applied to homes and to businesses. That is correct. Okay. And then in August of this year, it came up in the U.S. Supreme Court. Alex, you want to tell us about that? Sure. Thanks, Ritz. In August, the U.S. Supreme Court on an emergency application by landlords ruled six to three that the portion of the law that made the moratorium effective upon the filing of a hardship declaration was unconstitutional because landlords and mortgagees were not given any opportunity to contest the hardship declaration during a hearing. As a result, the Supreme Court held that the statutory scheme violated the principle that no man can be the judge of his own case. All right. The Supreme Court wanted an opportunity for the landlords to be heard from. Is that fair to say? That's correct. It was a due process issue in that the landlords and the lenders were unable to have a hearing to even contest 
the validity of the hardship declaration. So when the Supreme Court decided that, what happened to the act? Where do we go next? Part A of the act was declared unconstitutional and solely Part A, which pertained to the hardship declaration process. So in response to the Supreme Court's decision, the newly appointed Governor Kathy Hochul called for a special legislative session to amend and extend the act. The amended act signed into law on September 2nd provided lenders and landlords with the opportunity to request a hearing regarding the validity of a tenant or homeowner's hardship declaration. All right. And has that fixed the act to the satisfaction of landlords and lenders? The landlords who brought the original challenge to the act are continuing to challenge the act, Rich. There was a pending challenge by the same group of landlords who challenged the December 28, 2020 version of the act, alleging that the due process fix contained within the September 2 version of the act is a mirage that effectively bars landlords from housing courts. Okay, so that objection, too, is working its way through the courts? Yes, that's correct. There was a preliminary injunction hearing which was denied in front of the courts. So for now, and by the way, what's the current date now for the moratorium? Is it extended past August? It is. The amended act that uh, Alex was just talking about extends the moratorium through January 15, 2022. And currently, tenants and borrowers can submit these hardship declarations. What's the procedure from there? Well, first of all, the hardship declaration is a pre-printed form. It's sent to the tenant or to the mortgagor, either by the court or the landlord or mortgagee has to furnish it to the adversary. And just for you to get a, a feel for this pre-printed form, basically all the tenant or the mortgagor needs to do is fill in the address of the relevant property, and sign his or her name. As I said, it's a pre-printed form. And just to give you an example, the residential form says that including my primary residence, I own 10 or fewer residential dwelling units. I'm paraphrasing to a certain extent. I'm experiencing financial hardship. I'm unable to pay my mortgage or pay my rent in full because of one or more of the following. And I can very quickly tick them off. They're pre-printed. Significant loss of household income during the pandemic. Increase in necessary out-of-pocket expenses. Childcare responsibilities or responsibilities to care for an elderly, disabled, or sick family member during the pandemic. Moving expenses and difficulty I have securing alternate housing. Other circumstances which have negatively affected my ability to obtain meaningful employment or earn income. Or one or more of my tenants has defaulted on a significant amount of their rent payments since March 1, 2020. There are not even boxes next to each of those six factors I just delineated that you have to check. It's as long as one or more of them are met, person can sign the declaration, and there you go. I get it. You don't even have to specify the ground. You just have to say there is an applicable ground. Exactly. And you don't have to give any proof. You don't have to give a profit and loss statement. You don't have to show your taxes. You don't have to show a picture of the child that you're supporting. You just have to attest that one of these circumstances is applicable. 
Exactly. exactly. Okay. All right. So you do that and you file that, and that for now puts off any foreclosure action against you, right? Right, or eviction proceeding. That is correct. Okay. It produces a rebuttable presumption now under the amended law, which the landlord or mortgagee can contest by filing an actual motion seeking to invalidate the hardship declaration. If that motion is not filed, then the moratorium that I've just mentioned remains in effect through January 15, 2022. And if I'm a landlord or a lender and I want to challenge the hardship declaration, for example, I have reason to believe that the tenant or borrower is in perfectly fine financial shape, not much impacted by the pandemic. How do I now go about challenging that? Alex, you want to take that? There are certain bases for challenging a hardship declaration under the amended version of the Act. The commercial version of the hardship declaration requires the borrower or tenant to certify that their business is experiencing financial hardship and is unable to pay the mortgage in full because one or more of the following. Significant loss of revenue during the COVID-19 pandemic, significant increase in necessary expenses related to providing personal protective equipment to employees or purchasing and installing other protective equipment to prevent the transmission of COVID-19, moving expenses and difficulty in securing an alternative commercial property, or one or more of the business's tenants has defaulted on a significant amount of rent payments since March 1st, 2020. If the movement can show that all of these bases are invalid, then the movement should be entitled to invalidate the hardship declaration and move forward with the case. Furthermore, the hardship declaration with regard to foreclosure actions only applies to businesses that own 10 or fewer commercial units that are not dominant in their field and that employ 100 or fewer persons. So there are certain limits that are circumscribed directly into the hardship declaration, wherein a movement can show that the borrower does not meet these requirements, and therefore the case should proceed, notwithstanding the moratorium. Is that are, are we essentially requiring the movement, the landlord, or the lender to disprove hardship? Is that how that works? Yes. Yes, the burden falls upon the landlord or the mortgagee to effectively disprove uh, the validity of the hardship declaration. And it's not been thus far an easy thing for landlords or mortgagees to do. There's not a lot of reported case law yet, but those cases that have been reported for the most part have upheld the validity of the hardship declaration. Because as you were alluding to just before, Rich, it's it's a little difficult for the landlord or mortgagee to contest when they don't have the information yet available, be it tax returns, income statements, and the like. So it, it is a tough burden. What do I do if I'm a lender or a landlord, and I just don't know. 
whether my tenant has hardship. I just, I, I have no idea. What do I do? Great. That, that, that's a great question. Uh, we're involved in a case currently where we've actually relied on a provision of the hardship declaration stating specifically that I understand that the business must comply with all other lawful terms under my commercial mortgage agreement. And one provision that you find in most, if not all, commercial mortgage agreements is a provision requiring the borrower to turn over all books and records. And those books and records could support a challenge to the hardship declaration, especially if they show, for example, that the mortgagor has been receiving rent payments from a tenant during the period that they are supposedly claiming hardship. So that's interesting, right? Because the, the declaration doesn't give you the rights to get that information, but you're looking in the lease itself, uh, the other documents between tenant and landlord to see if there might be a way to get that, right? I was referring to the documents between mortgagor and mortgagee, but you may have those same provisions in a landlord-tenant relationship as well. Right. And we can get into that later in this podcast as to the certain differentiation between how landlords have approached this moratorium versus how lenders have approached the moratorium. There is a divide. Okay. Well, you know what? Why don't you tell me a little bit more about that? What is? What do you see as the differences in those categories? Sure. So in the landlord-tenant cases, especially the commercial landlord-tenant cases, where there's significant amounts of funds at stake, what we've seen is that rather than contesting the hardship declaration, what these commercial landlords have done is they've actually instituted non-payment proceedings in the state Supreme Court. And these are breach of contract actions uh, claiming money damages for non-payment of rent. And in certain cases, what we've actually seen is, is that the landlords have purported to send notice of determination and have relied on double or treble damages clauses in the leases providing for increased damages as a result of, of holdover. And those cases are proceeding through the New York courts, and those cases are not subject to the moratorium. And that's an important distinction when you're talking about landlords and tenants, that, that those cases are proceeding, whereas when you're talking about mortgagors and mortgagees, those mortgagees have to rely on, on contesting the hardship declaration on the basis that we've discussed. Right. Because, and this is important, the hardship declaration, we're only talking about forestalling eviction and foreclosure, right, Bob? We're not, we're not protecting the tenants and borrowers in other respects. Exactly. This statute imposes a moratorium on the exercise of the landlords or the mortgagees' remedies by reason of rent or mortgage payment defaults. It is not waiving the obligation of the tenant or of the mortgagor to make those payments, just that the landlord and the mortgagee cannot, while the moratorium's in effect and assuming the hardship declaration is held to be valid, preventing them from either evicting or foreclosing. But again, it does not do away with the obligation of the tenant ultimately to pay rent or be liable for it. And the same for a mortgagor vis-a-vis the mortgagee. Make good on the outstanding mortgage payments that are due. Right. And you can sue for the back rent that's owed. You just can't currently sue to evict such a person. Correct. That's exactly correct. 
And the language in the Hardship Declaration actually specifically addresses this point. It states, I further understand that lawful fees, penalties, or interests for not having paid the mortgage in full or met other financial obligations as required by the commercial mortgage agreement may still be charged or collected and may result in a monetary judgment. And this is a, a declaration that is either signed by the tenant or by the mortgagor. I know you uh, haven't both built a career litigating SIFA since it's only been around for uh, 12 months or even less. So tell us a little bit about your practice. I'm going to start again with Bob. Thanks, Rich. I'm in the firm's bankruptcy and restructuring group, but I am, by experience, a litigator. And I do an extensive amount of litigation in bankruptcy cases, representing trustees, representing Chapter 11 debtors in possession and also get involved in the sales of real estate assets and other assets of the debtor's estate in bankruptcy. In the long term, ever since I was like a wee little first-year associate, I have been involved in doing commercial mortgage foreclosure. And I continue to do that through the present day, including the matter I mentioned just before. And I have, since the mid-90s, been the chair or co-chair of the New York State Bar Association's program on mortgage foreclosures and workouts, which is given usually every other year. And I suspect we'll be having another one in the near future that certainly involves some of the pandemic-related issues that have arisen in the context of foreclosures. Alex? Thanks, Rich. Similar to Bob, uh, I practice bankruptcy and restructuring here at Tartar, Prinsky, and Brogan. My practice also encompasses commercial litigation, typically involving clients or entities within the zone of insolvency. If anyone has any questions relating to the topics that we've discussed here, including the foreclosure moratorium, the eviction moratorium, or COVID-19 related relief programs, please feel free to contact us about that. In addition to bankruptcy cases and foreclosure cases, my practice also encompasses litigation in state and federal court, particularly in cases involving COVID-19 related insolvency. Since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, I've helped many businesses secure millions of dollars grant and loan funding from state and federal relief programs. And even now, there are still many programs at both the state and federal levels providing grants and loans for businesses that were affected by the economic fallout of the COVID-19 pandemic. Many businesses have had trouble taking advantage of these programs due to the complicated web of regulations and requirements to receive funding. But if your business or any one of your contact businesses may benefit from additional funding, feel free to reach out to us. All right, that's great. I know uh, I was around when we went through the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, and that led to many years of litigation of one sort or another. And I still expect to see pandemic-related litigation for quite some time. We do a closing argument at the end of these episodes, a little takeaway for our listeners on the topic of the day. So what do we want to say about the moratorium as an end remark? Bob? Well, if the moratorium is further extended beyond January 15 of 2022, I think we can expect to see a flood of challenges to the hardship declarations. Of course, all this assume that the litigation that's presently pending in federal court that Alex alluded to before does not 
void this statutory scheme. If it doesn't, the moratorium, as I said, is extended. Expect to see a lot of hardship declarations filed, a lot of challenges, and maybe we'll start to see a greater number of cases starting to set standards for when a hardship declaration is valid and when it should be voided. If the moratorium is lifted, in other words, it is not extended beyond January 15 of this coming year, I think we can expect a tsunami of evictions and of foreclosure proceedings in court. It will be accompanied, I'm sure, by a significant increase in the number of bankruptcy filings, which have the effect of staying further eviction proceedings and foreclosure proceedings in numerous cases unless and until a bankruptcy court lifts the automatic bankruptcy stay. All right, Alex. Yeah, I think you hit the nail right on the head, Bob. And I think the big conditional factor here is whether the moratorium is further extended past January 15th, 2022. In the event that the moratorium is not extended and that cases are permitted to proceed, there's the open question of how fast the New York courts will schedule hearings on the tsunami of cases that is expected and what effect that will have on both the state court system and also on the bankruptcy court system as tenants and mortgagors begin filing for bankruptcy protection. On the other hand, if the moratorium is extended, then I think we'll see more of the landlords and mortgagors challenging hardship declarations on the basis that we've discussed during this podcast and bringing those challenges in an effort to move their cases forward. All right. Excellent summary. And as this proceeds, we may have you guys back to talk about it further. Bob Wolf, Alex Tickton, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having us, Rich. Thank you, Rich. Thank you again for listening to Law Brief. Now here's something lawyerly, a disclaimer. We are not your lawyers. We do not have an attorney-client relationship, and this podcast does not constitute legal advice. If you need legal advice, you should contact and engage counsel of your own choosing who can best address your own situation and particular needs. You can find more information about our law firm, me, and many of our guests at our website, www.tartarkrinsky.com. We are a mid-size, full-service firm located in New York City and New Jersey. If you want to contact us for any reason, be it comments, topic ideas, or anything else, you can email us at podcast at You can also follow this podcast on iTunes, among other places, and we would very much appreciate it if you rate or review us. I'm Rich Schoenstein, and this was Law Brief.